Good morning. How is Journey Church this morning? Good. Good. Now, a lot of you guys have been gone this week. We've been out a couple of weeks ourselves on vacation. As I was walking past the nursery a moment ago, I heard these terrible cries from in there. I thought, that's exactly the way I felt when I came back from vacation. No, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. No, don't leave me there. Hey, how many of you guys have already been on vacation this year? All right, some of you have been. How many of you plan to go on vacation this year? Oh, yeah, good, good. Everybody needs rest and a little bit of break from things. That's where we've just come back from. It's been great. Um, Kidmo kids, how many of you are Kidmo kids? You Kidmo kids are dismissed. Who's our leader today? I'm not sure who's in there today. Okay, very good. Somebody, somebody's getting some kids in there anyway. I hope it's not me or David because we're in here. But good. Thank you. If you guys are visitors with us, our Kidmo environment is where we have our elementary age school kids. And they get their own lesson, things that are uh, age group specific for them. And welcome to join them over there if you like, or they can stay with you in here. It's all fine. Well, good morning again. We're um, in our study of David. How many of you have been here for this whole series yet? Not important if you've missed some. But hey, it's been a great series. There's a lot of things about the life of David that we're going to cover. We're going to cover a lot today. Um, How many of you remember the movie Smokey and the Bandit? This is the 40th anniversary, and in honor of that, I'm going to tell you, we've got a long ways to go in a short time to get there this morning. There's three chapters of Scripture I'm going to try and cover. Here are my notes this morning. Actually, I'm lying. That's actually just some blank paper, that part is. My notes are pretty sparse. Now, see, you guys, are, see if I just showed you this first, you said, oh, my goodness. Now you're going to say, oh, great. He's just got a few, few notes here. It'll be quick. We will try and get through in time, but I will be moving pretty quickly. We'll be in the book of 1 Samuel, if you guys would like to turn there and Start getting your Bibles ready. Or we have a version app. I don't know if that's on the screen this morning yet, but we have version and a, a live event here as well. And you can track our, our notes and scripture through that if you'd like to on your smart device. We won't, won't think you're playing on your phone, although some of you probably will be. I know you guys. But uh, anyway, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much today for your blessings. Thank you for the rest and things you've given many of us on vacation. Thank you for the the trip that our youth got to make this past week and all the leaders that went. And gosh, they've come back recharged. I've talked to other people who have been to other events and things where they've gone. They've come back on fire for you, God, and they're charged up, Lord. And just pray that you'll you'll help them to take advantage of that and bless in their lives, Lord, as they go and, and witness for you in our communities, Lord. Just pray this morning as we examine the life of David, God, even though these events t- took place a long time ago by our standards, God, There are so many things in there that apply to our lives today. So many things about family relationships and struggles and and seeking wise counsel and all those things, God, we're going to delve into today. I just pray that you'll bless. Help us to apply these scriptures to our lives, Lord, and pray that the Holy Spirit will be in us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, I'm going to dig right in here. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 19. Quick recap from last week. We have seen that David is a rising leader in Israel. Saul is the king. Saul has become jealous, doesn't like David very much, has attempted to kill David. That, that was pretty much a hint for me. If somebody tries to kill me, they, they probably aren't liking me real well. So we've gone through that last week. David we got a wife last week in the scripture. Several things have happened there. There was a little bit of political intrigue there, even with his wife. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. But diving right into scripture, this is 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. Says, <clears throat> excuse me. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. 
already. Saul is on that path. He is still jealous. He's still just enraged by the fact that David is more popular than him. Remember the song that that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul is just hyper-focused on this. This guy is more popular than me. I'm going to lose my seat of power to him. The people like him better. They say, I've just got a thousand in my name. He's got ten thousand. I'm, I'm fed up with it. I am mad. I'm going to do something about it. So he's telling that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So David, they were good friends. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul and his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his own hands, and he struck down the Philistine, that was Goliath, And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Jonathan has gone to his dad, the king, And keep in mind, Jonathan, we don't talk about this. Jonathan would be a prince. He's the next in line for the throne. So so we've got Jonathan going to his dad and saying, look, dad, this guy's done nothing to you. You have no reason to fear him. If anything, he's brought good to the kingdom. He's a great warrior. He's not after your seat of power. He just wants to do what's best for our nation and what's best for God. You should be on his side. And it's not clear from Scripture. I think we'll see by his intentions. But at this point, Saul says, okay, I won't kill him. Now, is that very reassuring to you if somebody's already tried to kill you a couple of times, thrown a spear at you and tried to pin you to the wall with it? That's not going to reassure me very much that, you know, that your son comes and tells me, it's A-OK, dad's not mad anymore. I don't know about that. But that's where we're at with Saul. Saul is starting to really hyper-focus on this issue, this struggle, this rivalry between he and David. He's starting to let that consume him. But... For the moment, everything is back cool. David's come back into his presence. He's playing music for him. Everything's nice and calm. But then, in verse 8, look what happens. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. All right. Here's this guy that you already are kind of jealous of. Well, as usual, we're at war with our neighbors, the Philistines over here. So what does David do? He goes out, leads the army, and strikes a mighty blow against Israel's enemy. Do you think he's going to come back any less popular than he left? No, it's just one of those unexplainable things. David, for this is a horrible comparison, but he's, he's on everybody, he was like the Kardashians were for a while. Everywhere you turn, it's David, David, David. That's all you see. If he had Twitter, it would be, look what David did. Yeah, have you ever thought about, what if Saul had Twitter? Can you imagine what his Twitter feed looked like? Oh, I, I praise David. He's fantastic. He's great for the nation. And then the next day, it's, that David is a sorry scoundrel, and I think I'll kill him. I mean, that's the way Saul's mind worked, but that's what was going on. David was the rock star of the day. He was so popular that everybody loved what he was doing, wanted to know what he was doing, wanted to be David. You know, if we'd had action figures back then, we'd have had a little David action figure that all the kids would want. I want my David action figure with his armor and a Goliath that he's sticking with a sword. 
And he's killing all these Philistines. Oh, it's just fantastic. David is the man. Well, honestly, if I was Saul, I'd be feeling a little threatened by that. I would be getting upset. I would be thinking, hey, the writing's on the wall. This is the next, next guy coming up. How many of you guys are racing fans? You know, I always like to talk about cars. Anybody seen Cars 3 yet? Great movie. We got to see it last night. And the plot line is Lightning McQueen is the aging race car driver. He is now threatened by the new race car driver that's faster and better than him. And he can't figure out how to compete with that. That's where Saul's at today. Saul can't figure out how to compete with David. I can't do this. David is more popular than me. And everything he does, he brings David back in, agrees not to kill him. David goes out and makes war with the Philistines and comes back even more popular. So Saul's popularity is slipping. He sees his leadership slipping away and he becomes angry. Saul begins to unravel. Saul begins to be so focused on this that God doesn't matter, his family doesn't matter, nothing matters except Saul staying where he is. He's power hungry, he wants to stay in his position, and he'll do anything to do that. So what does God do in verse 9? Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. That's scary. That's, that's something we don't talk about a lot. In the Old Testament, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. If we're Christians, we've accepted Christ as our Savior. The Holy Spirit lives within us. In the Old Testament, it was not so. The Spirit came and went to people. And sometimes God would send a harmful spirit. It wasn't always the Holy Spirit. Sometimes a harmful spirit came upon people. This is what is happening to Saul. He's sitting there with his spirit, and a harmful spirit comes upon him. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Now, either God is preserving David or Saul is a really horrible marksman with that spear because this is like the third time he's thrown the spear at the guy and hit the wall, you know, shoom. And you can just hear that thing and it goes and boom, 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 you know, it vibrates in the wall. That would scare you to death if you're David and you're thankful that God has spared you. But this is the setup for the entire story we're seeing today is what happens. What happens when we need to flee from danger, flee from things that are bad for us? How do we handle those situations? Mark talked about a little of that last week, about you know, what our focus, what our compass is, how we react to situations around us. The first thing we tend to do is flee to our most comfortable and familiar place, okay? Whatever brings us comfort, whatever makes us happy, whatever takes the pressure off of us, when things happen bad to us, that's where we tend to flee, Unfortunately, for some of us, that can become things like substance abuse. It can become other things. We can become hyper-focused on our job. We can become hyper-focused on sexual activity. Anything that brings us pleasure and takes those problems away from us, that's where we tend to flee. Instead of fleeing to God and letting God be our intercessor in these situations, we tend to try and flee to the thing that's most comfortable to us. David's human. David flees to the place that's most comfortable to him, and that's his house. So David flees to his own home. 1 Samuel 19, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, or is that Michelle? Michelle? I have no idea. I can't pronounce Old Testament. Any Old Testament scholars like to take a stab at that? Be, be my guest, but we'll call it Michael. David's wife told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes and then sent Saul messengers to take David and she said, he's sick. Well, let's pause right there. David's gone back home to his wife. Does anybody know who his wife is? Saul's daughter. 
That's Saul's daughter. David has been somewhat tricked into marrying her to be part of this kingdom. He's like, well, why would I marry a royal daughter? I'm a nobody. It's, oh, yes, you need to marry one of my daughters. Saul is setting him up for failure. Saul has decided this is the way to keep David in check. I will put him in my own family, married one of my daughters. I'll have an inside track with this guy. So that's what he's done. He's married this, this lady that is Saul's daughter. And this is some of the intrigue and political and family drama that's throughout this situation. And Saul is trying to control him through this. But she is... She loves David. She takes care of him. Now, this sounds, this sounds crazy, but what she did was she made his bed up to look like he was in it, put some goat's hair there so that it looked like he, there, his hair was there, and said, oh, well, he's sick. Don't, don't bother David. Now, I'm not sure what the messenger said their purpose was when they came. She obviously had some intuition. The Holy Spirit was telling her that they're up to no good. But she said, he's sick. He can't come right now. So then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, well, bring him up to me in bed that I may kill him. I don't care if he's sick in bed. I want you to bring him in his, in his sick bed, bring him bed and all, and bring him here so I can kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul and said, he said to him, let me go. Why should I kill you? In other words, she lies. She says, well, David threatened to kill me. I let him go. Are you seeing the pattern of lies and deceit that run through these families to keep things going? I mean, it looks like any modern TV drama you see that, that focus on family issues and things of how they're going through and they're conniving, they're scheming, and they're trying to keep things going. And they'll lie at anything. Now, obviously, she's lying for what she thinks is a good purpose. She's lying to her dad about it to keep his life safe. But we're going to see there's a pattern of this throughout these scriptures. But what did David do after he was lowered down out of the window? He did. He fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, here's one of the things that you'll see. David has fled. He knows the heat is on. Saul wants to kill me. He's thrown spears at me multiple times. When I've been in his presence, he sent his men to come and get me out of my own home and take me up to have me killed. I'm going to run away and get away from this problem. Well, here's the thing. What happened? As soon as he got there and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Somebody already ratted him out. He didn't even probably get there before the people that was watching him said, hey, here's where David's at. And as the old saying goes, you can run from your problems, but you can't hide from them. We do this often in our lives. When things come up, we think, well, simply this change will replace this problem in my life. If I do this, this problem will go away. Now, if you're taking positive steps towards something, that's one thing. But if you're just trying to change your luck with your problem, if you're just trying to get away from that problem and put some distance between you and it by changing your lifestyle or doing something different, just to not deal with the problem, it's going to find you out. So many times in, in, in when I deal with people that are having chaos in their lives, that's the reason we call our group Chaos Management. So many times where they have this chaos in their lives, it's not that they're addicted to drugs. It's not that they're addicted to alcohol. It's not that they're addicted to sex. It's not that they're addicted to money. 
The problem is there is something in their life that they have not dealt with and they're using these things to deal with the problem and they're trying to run and hide from it in those problems. And that happens to us, but you can't hide from your problems. You have to, at some point in time in your life, take and face the problem. David's going to learn this at some point in time, but for right now, he is still on the run. So he has run to Samuel. He is hiding out there, but Saul has already been notified of his whereabouts. So then Saul sent messengers to take David. I don't know why they call them messengers. Why don't we call them assassins or soldiers or something? But he calls them messengers to go and get David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel was a prophet, and these were prophets around him. And Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied. Now, this is something that needs a little explanation. This is some Old Testament terminology here. When it says prophesied, that doesn't mean that they were over here and, and they were predicting the future and they were saying this is going to happen. That is sometimes part of prophecy. But this means simply they were proclaiming the good of the Lord. They were proclaiming God's truth. They were praising God in praise and worship and song. That's what it means when it says that they went, Samuel was praising the Lord. Samuel's prophets were praising the Lord. Saul sent one group of men there. They went and they came and praised the Lord. He sent a second group and they're praising the Lord and talking about how good God is. He sends a third group and they're talking about how good God is. Okay, we often ask God for signs in our life of what to do. How many of y'all have ever prayed, God, show me a way, God, show me, show me some sign, show me something visible so I'll know what to do. I think this is a case where perhaps God did this for Saul three times. God, what do you want me to do? Should I kill David? No. Should I kill David the second? No. Should I kill it? No. You go and you keep seeing this, and God's people are praising him in opposition to Saul. But now, what happens when we decide that what we want is more important than what God wants? And that's where we always get into trouble in our lives is when such as Saul, Saul allows his emotion to continue to cloud his judgment. I think he's been given some pretty clear signs. When David runs to the prophet and you see them all praising the Lord and God not telling you to kill him, I think it's time to back off. I think God's given you a pretty clear answer. But Saul's emotions cloud his judgment. He is more worried about Saul. He's more worried about Saul's kingdom. And we'll see throughout this story, he continues to be worried about himself and his kingdom. So he lets that cloud his judgment. So rather than backing off, looking for God's will in his life, repenting of what is obvious sin of trying to kill this man who's done nothing to him, Saul continues on the same path. So what happens when we can't get it done through our peers, through our family, through all these people we want to do something for us? Okay, if I want it done right, I'll do it myself. Verse 22 of chapter 19. Then he himself, talking about Saul, went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. Look, this should be the final sign for you. If you have felt the uncontrollable need in this situation now to go and praise God in opposition to what your own emotions are telling you, you should be doing some self-awareness checks and saying, 
I am on the wrong path. Look, God's Spirit, this is the last time in Saul's life that the Spirit God of God will be upon him. This is God's last thing. You know, God is a patient God too, by the way. God is not this, this, this holy person sitting up here looking to smite us down every time we do wrong. God is not up there looking for you to mess up that first time and say, I finally got you. You're going down. That's not the way our God is. He's a loving God. He's a patient God. He's long-suffering. He goes through all of this with us, even though it kills him inside. It, it hurts his very soul to see the sin that we fall into. He is patient. He waits for us to come out of these things. But Saul's case, God does turn him over to his own desires to speak. So what happens next? Saul, talking about Saul. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Okay, naked may not necessarily mean naked here. I know everybody's thinking, dude, just strip down butt naked over here in the floor. What's going on? No, what this is talking about is Saul took off his armor and his royal garments. He was, a, he was a warrior king. He had armor. He had royal garments that identified him as a king. What, what Saul did was basically he took off his armor, he took off his royal robes and vestments and things, and he laid in his skivvies, okay? He's laying in his underwear, basically, which is fairly embarrassing. How many of you want to come up here and stand in your underwear? No, no volunteers, please. But, you know, it's embarrassing. It's humbling. It's a sign of humility. And that's what Saul was doing. And he is... He's prophesying again. He's praising God. It's crazy. People around silence see him doing this, and they see the humility. They see, they see him submitting himself to God, and they say, is he one of the prophets now? They think Saul has had this change of heart. They look at what he's doing. They think, he's, he's one of the prophets after he's done this. So what continues to happen in this story? Let's jump on. But, well, I didn't cover this point. You do need to know this. Saul stripped himself of his armor and royal garments, and this symbolizes God's rejection of him as king of Israel. When he laid those things aside and humbled himself before God, that was basically God's identifying to those around. Saul is done as my king. Saul is no longer my king. I have someone else in mind for this throne. Saul has disgraced himself. He's disqualified himself from leadership. And this is God's sign, outward sign, that he has rejected Saul as the king of Israel. So let's jump on to chapter 20, verse 1. So David fled, flees from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So let's kind of get the path here. David started out here. He goes over here running from his problem to seek Samuel's counsel over here in Ramah. Well, Saul follows him there. So he goes back to where Jonathan's at over here. See this pattern? He's moving around. He's trying to escape from this. He's, he's fleeing for his life. And he's asking, as we often do when problems come into our life, what have I done to deserve this? What? Somebody show me. If I'm missing something in my life that I have done wrong, please tell me, why is God punishing me? What is happening here? Have you noticed how often we go to that when something, something that is distasteful, bad, takes us off our path in life or whatever, that we immediately think God is punishing us. We, we think that. We're just human. That's the way our human mind works, is if anything negative happens to us, God's punished me for something. We start soul searching. What have I done that God's doing this to me? Well, you know, that's not true. God sometimes puts obstacles in our life to build character in our lives, to build our witness for Him, to make us rely more on Him than on ourselves. Some of those things God 
All those things God puts in our path are for our own good. And that's what's happening to David. He's building David up. David doesn't realize that. But anyway, he is asking, what have I done? Why, what is my guilt? Why does your father want to kill me? Here's the thing that David is doing right. It's a good idea to seek counsel from friends who will tell you the honest truth. I hope you guys all have friends or friends in a group or somewhere that when you're going off the rails in your life, that they will back up and say, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you the truth. You're doing something that's harmful to you. It's harmful to your Christian witness if you're a Christian. I need to talk to you about this. We all need friends like that in our lives. We need somebody, even a spouse, that we can be totally honest with that will tell us the truth and say, am I doing something I shouldn't do? Help me check up on myself. Is this an activity that honors God? Have I done something wrong here? I I need some advice. I need some help. But now, here's the thing. You've got to have an honest, truthful friend that's walking close to God to give you that advice. Okay? You can't just go and ask your group of peers if what you're doing is wrong. I don't know how many times I have struggled with this with people in our chaos management group. I'd like to quit drugs or alcohol or whatever it is that's, that's my, my hang-up. But what happens is my friends abandon me when I do this. They're like, oh, well, you're being holier than thou now. You don't need to cl- stop drinking or smoking weed or whatever you're doing. You don't need to stop that. You're just, that's just uncool. You're, why are you turning your back on us, friends? What? You just don't want to be our friends anymore. You're that kind of person. Well, you're just stuck up. You're one of those people. I don't want anything to do with you. And so what happens, we stay trapped in our own sin and our own addictions and things that go on in our life because people, our so-called friends, are encouraging us to stay there. They're not looking out for our best interests. They're doing what makes them comfortable. They've run to their comfortable place. Their comfortable place may be an addiction or something. They have gone to that comfortable place, and it's more comfortable to keep you there with them than it is to let you go and let you excel in your life, let you be the person that God wants you to be. It's easier to keep you close as a friend if we're very similar in spirit. If my spirit's broken and I'm down in the dumps and I'm doing these things, it's easier if I just keep you close by and keep you down in the dumps and keep your spirit like my spirit is. And that's what happens to us if we don't seek wise counsel. But here, continuing on, 1 Samuel chapter 20 says, And he said to him, this is answering David's question, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So David has come to Jonathan for some, some counsel. He's his good friend. He's always told him the truth. He's asking, what have I done? Why does your father want to kill me? And Jonathan's answer is, oh, Dad doesn't want to kill you, really. Now, if I'm David, I'm in a very hard situation now. My best friend, who I trust with my life, these guys are the closest relationship that you can imagine. They love each other as brothers. They you know, they are almost as brothers, even though they're not related by blood. They love each other. They take care of each other. They watch out for each other. And Jonathan's telling him, look, if dad really wanted to kill you, he would have told me so. Now, as I'm taking this advice from my friend, what's running through my mind is he didn't want to kill me. Well, he threw a chuck the spear at me three times. That's kind of a hint to But do you know what? Sometimes our mind starts to work in funny ways. Your mind works funny. Mine works funny sometimes. It starts to run away with these ideas. Well, I know. Maybe maybe Saul doesn't want... You know, maybe he missed on purpose. He He did throw it at me three times. Maybe he just didn't mean to hit me. Maybe he's just trying to scare me. Maybe it's really okay. My friend's saying it's okay. Maybe... Maybe things are, are really not what I think. 
That's where it is so difficult for us as Christians to sometimes discern God's will in our lives. Our friends, well-meaning, are telling us one thing, but inside something is the Holy Spirit is telling us, no, that's not true. That's not, that's not really true. They mean well, but they're not telling you the truth about this. Or, in this case, though we mean well when we give advice, we may not have all the facts. You ever been put in that situation? Gosh, I see it all the time. You see, this happens to me in counseling constantly. As a husband and wife, spouses start to have problems in their marriage. And you hear one side, you hear the other side. You bring them together, you hear it together. But what happens is so often there's some truth under all of this that you're not hearing. You're trying to give these folks advice on what to do. And obviously praying for them is a huge part of this so that God's will, the things that we don't know can be discerned by God and that he can help them through these problems. But so often what happens is one spouse is not telling the truth on the other spouse. There is something behind the scenes that you're not seeing. And your advice might change if you knew that. If you knew all the facts, if you knew that this spouse was doing this or that, your advice to them as a couple might change. But they have compartmentalized this in their life, and they're not telling you this aspect of their life. They don't want you to know that. So sometimes you give advice without having all the facts. Does that make you a bad person? No, it just makes you human. We live in a fallen human world where sin runs rampant through our families, through our relationships, where these things happen, and we're navigating a very precarious path sometimes through all of this, trying to help people with what God's will is, trying to help assist them, trying to lead them. I hope all of you guys have friends. I hope you're a strong enough friend that, as a Christian friend, you have somebody that seeks advice from you. For one thing, it keeps me in check in my life to make sure I'm right with God so that hopefully I have a good enough relationship with my Heavenly Father that I can give sound advice to others. I think that's important for all of us as Christians. There is someone that looks up to you as a Christian, whether you even know it or not. Even if you're a marginal Christian, there is someone out there that's looking up to you for advice. They are trying to find out, what can I do in my life? But again, in this situation, we're going to see that Jonathan may not have had all the facts. But here's what David says. David bowed again saying, Your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, don't let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. David's a pretty good judge of character here. What David has said is, your dad knows that we are close friends. Your dad's not going to tell you that he's going to kill me. Your dad's going to spare your feelings. He doesn't want to trouble you with it. He wants to keep his relationship with you while destroying me. So he's not going to tell you everything. I think that's a good observation. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, say then, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. See, David still has this humble servant attitude. He's not trying to overcome Saul in a takeover of power. He, he describes himself as a servant. But he says, but if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself. He's telling Jonathan, if I'm guilty, then you just go ahead and kill me. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. 
If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers to you roughly? Well, this is an interesting scenario we have here. Jonathan, Jonathan and David are talking as friends. David is convinced that Saul's trying to kill him. Jonathan doesn't necessarily think so. He's going to go back to his dad and sound him out. David is supposed to go to this festival with the king. He is supposed to sit at the king's table. One of the things you have to remember, David's family now. This is like the family reunion, guys. This is the big deal. This is the family reunion. And you have to be there or you become the black sheep of the family, right? How many of you, in looking around, you know, if the black sheep of the family, if you don't know who that is in your family, it's likely you, okay? If you can't identify the black sheep in the family, it's probably you, this is what David is thinking. You know, if I don't go, I've got to make an excuse because how many of you have ever made an excuse to not go to a family reunion? Yeah, we've got some honest folks out here. Sometimes it's a trying thing. It's not something you want to do. You go and you get introduced to ants that you don't even know you had. You have no idea who they are, but somehow they know everything about you. It's like they're Facebook stalkers or something. They know everything you've done in your life. And you're like, I don't even know who this person is. You may know, like, I don't know. Well, this is kind of the situation David's at. So he's kind of choosing between two festivals. And he says, well, here's what you do, Jonathan. Tell your dad that I won't go back to Bethlehem, my hometown. Everybody heard of that little town of Bethlehem? We talk about that at Christmas. That, that comes into play later. We'll see, see some promises God makes about Bethlehem and David's lineage. But David says, I, just tell your dad I'm going back to hang with my family for a little family get-together. We do this every year around the festival of the new moon. We get together and, and we, we do this as a family. And Just tell your dad that's where I am if he misses me. Okay. Does anybody see a problem with this yet? What has David just done? He's lied. David has fabricated a story, even though he's probably trying to preserve his own life. And then what else has he done? He drug his best friend down with him. He said, okay, here's the lie. Jonathan, if your dad asks, go tell him this lie. Desperation will cause us to abandon the truth and ask others to do the same with us. When we get in desperate situations, whatever it may be, the truth just starts to flee from us. It gets to the point that people can't believe what you say. You know, you start thinking, well, David said he's going, so is he really going there now? I don't know. He told me to lie for him here in this situation. Maybe David's not being honest with me now. Can you see how that would strain relationships, even a good relationship? You start to question the honesty, the integrity of this person that says you're, they're your friend. How many of you ever been put on the spot to lie for a friend? That is a hard thing. They want you to lie for them and keep them out of trouble in some way. You know, and you feel obligated as a friend. Well, if you won't do this for me, you're not a good friend. You're not really my friend or you would do this for me. You should never, in a relationship, ask somebody to do something else wrong for your sake. That's just so wrong. That's so sinful. It's so out of the character of a Christian, what we should be doing in God's eyes. But we do it out of desperation so many times. But Jonathan says to David in verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then sin and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Here's what Jonathan has said. I'll go, I'll sound out 
Dad, find out where his head's at in all this. I don't think he's trying to kill you, but I'll go back and I'll check with him. And I'll send you some kind of message so that you'll know if Dad is really mad and trying to kill you, you will know. And David, I swear to you, if I don't do this for you as a friend, may God strike me dead if I'm lying to you. If I some way betray you, may God take my own life if I'm betraying you in this. So Jonathan's Jonathan's loyalty is to doing the right thing despite his father's wishes. You know, this is one thing, you know, Jonathan's in line for the throne. He's the prince. He's the next one up. So what he's done, he he has made this covenant with David that, hey, if my dad's really out to kill you, I'm going to tell you. Here's the the hard situation. This has put Jonathan at odds with his father. He's going to have to do something here. He's going to have to figure this out. He's going to have to somehow negotiate with his father and try and stay in his good graces as well as trying to protect David. You know what he's going to have to do? He's going to have to mislead somebody, isn't he? He's going to... That's a really tough situation to be, especially in a family, when your family's wanting you to do something wrong. Anybody ever kind of given a nod to something your family wants you to do that's distasteful or probably you shouldn't do and just kind of give the nod to it and then not do it to keep the peace? Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. It's a tough situation to be put in. And it may not be something necessarily simple, but you just kind of, yeah, okay, that's all right. Or they're talking something and just to not have an argument. Maybe they're talking politics at the family reunion. That's probably the worst situation you can ever have in your life. It's talking politics at the family reunion, and they're talking about how this person's so great, and you say, yeah, 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 the other person, that's okay. Just to keep the peace in the family. We all do that. We all make compromises sometimes just to keep peace in the family. So this is what Jonathan's about to do. So they have agreed what's going to happen, and David is going to go and hide in this field. They've come up with this elaborate plan that he will, if, if Saul is mad or not mad, that, that Jonathan is going to go out and he's going to shoot some arrows in this field. And depending on where those arrows land, he's going to tell this young boy to go out and retrieve the arrows. And whatever he tells him is it's kind of a thing for David. It's a secret sign. If I tell the boy that the arrows are way out here, you know, that means that Saul's mad. If I tell him they're right here close, they're right there to your right, that means Saul's not mad at you. So they've worked out this kind of system of secret signals. So David goes and he hides himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, and as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something's happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Remember, this is a religious festival. You had to be clean. You had to be pure in front of God. If something happened in your life that that disqualified you from being clean, so to speak, this is not talking about bathing. This is talking about spiritual cleanliness. You could be disqualified. It's all like, hey, surely not clean. That's what's up. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why is not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? So Saul's asking, okay, what's up? David's not here. What's going on? Guys, this is where the story is about to take a, a turning point. Jonathan answered Saul and said, David earnestly asked me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, their family reunion, and my brother has commented to me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. He's told his dad, hey, David's gone 
He's hanging out with his family. You know how that goes, Dad. You want him here. They want. It's like Christmas. How many of you have two Christmases every year? Or Thanksgiving dinner. We've got to go to this set of parents' house at noon. And then by 5 o'clock, we've got to eat again at this set of parents' house. You know, you, my favorite movie, one of my favorite holiday movies is The Grinch. You feel like The Grinch after eating all the fudge when he's going around. Oh! You know, you've gone to all this to try and please both families. Well, that's kind of the story they're saying david's in david's trying to please both these families he's going go back to his folks i know dad it makes you mad he's not here with us but hey it is what it is well as usual telling a lie tends to make things worse david's out here hiding in the field jonathan knows it he's telling his dad david is somewhere else that he's not and immediately what happened verse 30 then saul's anger was kindled against jonathan Oh, yeah, was it kindled. This is the family reunion blow-up of the century. This is the worst thing that can happen at your family reunion. He says to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Man, that's pretty strong, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been in the, re- the family reunion being called the son of a perverse, rebellious woman, but don't be insulting my mom, okay? That's, that's uncalled for. You know, Saul's kind of down on his wife, too. It's like, golly, he's insulting my mom. He's insulting me. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Man, those are strong words. When you start bringing up mama's nakedness in a conversation, that's tough stuff, guys. This is, this is bottom of the barrel insulting. This is about as, as bad as you can get. You're shaming your mama's nakedness in this. That sounds like a local family reunion, doesn't it? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Look here, son. What you're not understanding is this guy's going to take the kingdom. If he takes the kingdom, you ain't the prince no more. You got it? You're not going to rule on the throne. You're screwing up the family legacy. You ever had that talk from dad? (laughs) If you do this, you're just ruining everything I've done for you. That's what, that's what Saul's telling Jonathan. He's saying, you're, you're messing up everything. The kingdom, Jesse's son's going to be the king and not you. Therefore, send and bring him to me, and he shall surely die. Again, do you need any clear picture, Jonathan, of what your dad's intentions are, you son of a rebellious, perverse woman? He's telling you, I'm going to kill him. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, said, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Now, Arguing with your dad when he's mad, has that ever worked good for anybody? Dad, let me reason with you. No, that's never going to work out. Saul hurls his spear at him to strike him. Saul needs eyeglasses, evidently. Saul again throws the spear at his son and misses him too. Saul cannot hit the broadside of a barn with a spear, evidently. Or God is protecting those who are honoring him. We can take it for what it is. So he throws... Throws the spirit at Jonathan, tries to strike him dead. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. I've gone to this feast. This is, by the way, guys, this is like Easter dinner. This is supposed to be honoring God. One of the things we do, we eat Easter dinner. That's that's one of our so-called holy days, I guess, to compare it to the New Testament. This is like going to Easter dinner and having the family blow up. This is supposed to be the time we're honoring God that he sent his sacrifice of his son to die for us. We're remembering these things on Easter and having the huge family blow up, cussing each other, talking about your mama's nakedness and doing all these horrible things. 
That's what has happened. Jonathan got so mad, he got up and didn't even eat the Easter ham. Of course, they didn't eat ham. It's pork. Y'all realize that, don't you? But he got up and he did not eat the meal with them. So here's what has happened from telling that lie. But Saul is more concerned with his legacy than with God's will. Saul is one of those guys that at all costs, he wants his name to be known even after he's dead through his family. He wants to live through his sons. He wants his kingdom to reign forever and ever and ever through his lineage. I've been watching a new TV show that I really like. Uh, it's a Western-type show called The Sun with Pierce Brosnan. Anybody watch that? His character, it's on AMC. It's a good Western, but his character is all about preserving his ranch. They're cattle barons. And they're in the in the West Texas, or actually in the Texas Panhandle, in the early 1900s. And he's all about this. He's become a cattle baron. Well, what has happened? The cattle trade's kind of drying up. There's too much competition. But some folks have found what Jed Clampett found on his land. Got that bubbling black crude in his land. So so he is trying to figure out how to get this oil. Well, there's one problem, and this sounds just straight out of the Bible. Okay. The problem is the oil is on his neighbor's land. It's like the vineyard being on your neighbor's land in the Old Testament. And he's trying to figure out what we can do to trick this man, even to the point of perhaps killing him, to get that land. He has two sons. One son is complicit to the plan and goes and tries to bribe public officials to document, to, um, to change the records of the taxes and things that this man has paid on his land to try and steal and swindle him of his land. His other son wants nothing to do with it. Isn't that funny how a modern-day TV drama looks like it's based on the Old Testament? Look at this. Throughout history, guys, family is family. It's always been filled with turmoil. There's always been things going on, and that's what that was like. But Saul is just so concerned with his legacy. So let's move on to the next verse. Then Jonathan goes out, finds David, and he says to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, on the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan did what he said he'd do. David, yeah, it looks like Dad's pretty ticked off. He just threw a spear at me and tried to kill me. I'm pretty sure he's going to kill you too if he gets the chance. So he goes, does what he says. This is the thing about Jonathan. Despite his family's wishes, which, of course, that's going to strain my relationship with Dad if he throws a spear at me. I may be a little bit vindictive back towards him. A true friend warns us of impending danger. Those true friends, those godly friends, those people we can look up to, they tell us when something in our life is going to derail and ruin our lives. We all need friends like that. And that's who Jonathan is. So again, David takes off. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? Okay, so David has come. He's come to this priest. This priest has some things going on too. Now, this priest is from a line of priests. I want to backtrack just a few chapters back and tell you who this priest is, Ahimelech. Now, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They do not know the Lord. Okay? Eli was his great-grandfather. I believe it was great, not great-great. It was his great-grandfather. So Ahimelech's family has been in the lineage of these prophets, but God has said, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They don't know the Lord. They're masquerading as prophets, basically. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 2. 
And then on down in 1 Samuel chapter 2, at verse 30, it says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, talking about the prophets, so that there will not be an old man in your house. God has promised to end this line of prophets, okay? Ahimelech is one of these prophets, okay? David has come off the road, sweaty, nasty, panting, kind of in a panic, and said, hey, what's going on? I need this. Well, okay, if you've already known in your family that something bad's going to happen to you at some point in time, I'm going to really be leery of who this David character is coming seeking my advice, aren't you? I'm going to look at it like, oh, why is David here? And he seems kind of shook up. Uh, I wonder if this is kind of the end for me. So here's what David does. First of all, God does not honor those who don't honor him. Simple as that. If you're not going to honor God, God's not going to honor you in front of other men. And that's what Ahimelech is going to find out here shortly. But not only has Saul been rejected by God as king, but he's also rejected this current line of priests. So this is a big deal in Israel. This is the religious leaders are disgraced and rejected by God. This, this line of prophets, there's more than one prophet. We have Samuel, who's a good prophet, but these are bad prophets. These are televangelists, if you want to think of it that way. They're out for their own good. They're not after honoring God. They're just out for their own good, okay? And over here, you've got Saul, that's the king, and he's disgraced. So Israel is in a state of disarray. It's horrible what's going on. They've both been rejected. So, But now, here's what David says. And David said to him, like the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. Hey, me and my men are hungry. We're on this, we're on this secret mission. We can't t- Of course, being a movie guy and all those things, immediately I think of the Blues Brothers. You younger folks may not know that, but we're here on a mission from God. That's what David's telling the priest. He said, I'm here on a mission from God. I've got this worked out. Here we go. This is what I need you to do for me because I'm doing this, this big thing that I can't tell you about, but it's, I'm telling you, it's for the king, and I'm doing this big thing, and you got some food to give me? Now, David tells a little white lie that's going to have huge consequences. You know, we've always heard the things. It's a sin to steal bread if you're hungry. You know, we can debate the morality of that. The problem is you're lying. You're basing some sinful activity that is where your, your motivation is rooted. And don't miss next week because we're going to have the outcome of this. We're not going to see what happens yet, but next week you'll see what happens to Ahimelech as a result of this interaction with David. So the priest answers David and says, I have no common bread on hand. What, what that meant was they had bread that was a sacrifice to the God on a table. Uh, imagine it's kind of like when we do communion or something. There's this bread here that's dedicated for God. This isn't for snacking. This isn't for you to just come in and eat for nourishment. This is dedicated to God. So Ahimelech's telling him, I don't have any common bread. There's only the holy bread. Now, if these young men who are with you have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, well, truly women have been kept away from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? The lie is deepening. Okay, not only is he saying, now whether these men 
had been pure and not been with women on this journey with David? I don't know. They may very likely have been. But David's playing it up really big that not only is this just an expedition, this is a big deal. So this is such a big deal. Well, of course they've been clean because this is, they've, this is a holier-than-holy expedition. They've, uh, certainly they have been. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So basically this was the bread that had been dedicated to God. And he said, if you guys are clean, you can have this bread to eat. Again, how clean are you? You may not have been with another woman during this expedition, but you just lied to the priest. How, you know, how, how clean can you be? So there are consequences to all this. We'll see next week. But so they take the bread, replace it with the other bread, and give it to David to eat. Now, David's lie deepens a bit more because he really isn't on a journey. He's running for his life. What would have been wrong with saying, Saul is trying to kill me. I know he's the king, but dude, he has lost it. He is crazy. He's tried to kill me. He's tried to kill his son. He's disobeyed God. I've done nothing to him. I'm just seeking asylum here. Would you protect me? didn't do that he told a lie about it so now in first samuel 21 verse 7 now a certain man of the servants of saul was there that day detained before the lord his name was doeg the edomite the chief of saul's herdsman we'll hear more about doeg next week he plays a big role in something that that is going to happen next week to these priests so keep that remind that name in mind so we'll hear more about doeg next week but then david says to ahimelech then have you not a spear or a sword in hand? Okay, I've got something to eat. You got anything I can use as a weapon here? Now, okay. If the priest is sharp here, I'm going to start saying, you're on this mission for the king. It's a super secret mission. But he sent you out without anything, any kind of weaponry or armor or anything. It's like send, sending the Navy SEALs in somewhere to defeat a foe and then going around begging for guns. That's not going to happen, y'all. I mean, it's crazy. But this lie continues to deepen. Yeah, now I need a sword. So, so he says, is there not a spear or sword in hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business requires haste. I was in too big a hurry to get my weapon. I know I'm going out to kill some folks, but I just didn't have time to get my weapons. That sounds like your kids' excuses about homework and stuff, doesn't it? Oh, I just forgot. I, I was in a hurry. I didn't get my book. It's in my locker. I don't know. And the priest tells him, well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Okay, what has happened is, remember the story of David and Goliath? Young man takes a, a rock and a sling and hits what would be a giant. He was a very huge man, a race of giants, basically. And he defeats him with this, this sling and this smooth pebble. He strikes him in the head and he dies. Well, David got this sword from him. That was a spoil of war basically that was his victory he took the sword off of goliath and now they have put this to remember what david has done and remember how god used a miracle of this young man defeating such a tremendous foe they have placed this sword in a place in honor of god and it's kind of like a shrine it's a it's a thing that this helps us to remember what david's done it's behind the effort he says okay if you will take that take it for there is none here but there is none but that here. And David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. So he's coming and he's eating the bread. He's coming and he's looking for weaponry. The only weapon we've got left is Goliath's sword. Now, I'm, I'm trying to figure out 
something here that I'm not, I'm not quite sure of how it works in this story. We remember David was a young man. He wasn't a, necessarily a big strapping warrior when he defeated Goliath. Some time has gone by here. You know, can you imagine Goliath being, I don't remember how many feet tall, there's some discrepancies, but he's this huge man, okay? He's got this sword that probably is head tall. David has evidently grown in stature and strength somehow during this time because he takes that sword and he's going to use it. It's not like he's dragging it around or whatever. It's actually a weapon to him now. So I'm not sure how much time has, has transpired here, but something has gone on there. So David gets that sword and he says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay. Anybody remember where Goliath was from? Gath. Okay, you talk about having nerves or whatever you want to, intestinal fortitude, whatever you want to call it. David sets off for Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword in his hand. Okay, somehow I'm thinking this isn't a good idea to start with. This is like, okay, let's go and let's just rub salt in the wound. That's, you know, hey, I'm going to take that sword that I got from your, your, your greatest warrior and I'm going to go and... Just march into town with it. That's like saying, hey, I'm here. Look at me. You remember what I did to Goliath? I'll do it to all of you. I got his sword. Look here. Kind of seems like a weird move to make. But let's look at the map. Did we, were we able to get the map in there? Yeah, awesome. This is some of where David was, was dealing with and what he was doing. The first part of our story takes place in circles one, two, three, and four. That's where David was going back and forth talking to Jonathan in the field. That's where he went to to Samuel, that's where he went to Ahimelech. That's where all that activity was play, taking place. It's one, two, three, and four. He's moving back and forth between these areas. Now, that area has gotten hot, okay? The people there want to kill him. He can't hide there. He went to see Samuel, and, and Saul's people immediately caught, you know, caught on to that and told Saul where he was at. So this circle up here, this one, two, three, and four, has become too hot for David to stay there. So he's fled all the way over to Phil Philistia, which is where the Philistines are from, to number five there at Gath. That's where David's gone. Now, in the coming weeks, you're going to see David go all over this, this land. You'll see up to point, I think, 16 is the highest one where he winds up back in Gath. But he's going to be running all through this area trying to preserve his life as Saul is, to, is after him. So he has come into the land of Gath, okay? And the servants of Achish, who's the king there, said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances that Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Do you see why Saul's so mad now? Here's this little dude that's come in. He's the newbie. He's come in. He's taken all my fame. Even our daggum enemy way over here in Gath knows about David and the stupid song they wrote about him. Can you imagine how that gets in your head if you're already jealous that even your enemies are saying, hey, there's David. He's the guy that killed 10,000. <laughs> Saul, you had, you had 1,000 to your credit. No wonder he's so, so angry and things and so jealous because he doesn't know how to deal with that. So, and David took the, these words to heart and was much afraid of Achash, the king of Gath. Okay, what David has done here is David is thinking, huh. I just marched in to the king's place with Goliath's sword. You know, he may not take this so well. He may be a little upset with me. This may not have been the smartest move I could make today. So what David does is another scheme. 
So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? King Achish is saying, i got enough crazy people to worry about without you bringing in this guy. He's over here, he's slobbering all over himself. He's got Goliath's sword and he's talking and stuff. I have no idea what, why in the world did you bring him into my presence. i got enough crazy stuff going on without this mess. But again, David is using deceit to get his way. And we'll look throughout his, his history and David is going to have a lot of problems with the truth at times. And David's going to have, that's going to be his downfall at times. And sometimes David, now I understand, would I do the same thing? Absolutely, probably. I would be tempted to do the same thing. I'm preserving my life here. You know, a little white lie is not going to hurt anything. If they think I'm crazy, this is good, because this was not my most well-thought-out plan marching in here like this. I've got to have a plan B, it looks like, because these guys are looking at me like, I think we might just kill him. So that's what he did. Now, here's the, here's the best part of this story for all you guys out there that have facial hair. David, man's man, you got facial hair, right? Because he had, he had spit. You can't have spittle on a clean face now. He got in his beard, right? There you go. See, I knew somebody give me an amen out there. But seriously, David was a man's man now. He's, he's grown up. He's, he's tough. He's not this little kid that we keep thinking about. We think about him when we think about David. We think about him as being probably a kidmo-age kid over here, maybe an early teen that's in the youth, maybe one of the newbies that's come out of out of the Kidmo ranks is, is one of David's youngest youth. That's how we think of David. This is a bearded, tough guy with glass sword. David's changed a little bit over time. David's learning the ways of the world. Sometimes David's adapting to the ways of the world in a good way. Sometimes he's not. But that's where our story's going to finish today. And what I want you to get out of this is the main point is to seek wise counsel. David did some things wrong in his life. He did some things right. But one of the things he did correctly was he sought out Jonathan's counsel and Samuel's counsel who were honorable, godly men that would tell him the truth of what was going on in his life. And I encourage all of y'all today, you know, whether it's family drama, whatever you're getting tied up in, all these things that it's been going on for centuries and centuries, guys. It's been going on since the Old Testament of this, these things of family relationships and problems and things that, that are tough on us. Hey, the reason God put these things in Scripture is for us to look back and say, it was going on then, it's going on today, how can I deal with it? You can deal with it with seeking God's will for your life, doing what God wants you to do, having good friends in your life that will give you honest counsel, and seeking that counsel for, from, from them. doesn't do you any good to have godly friends if you're not going to listen to them. doesn't do you a bit of good to ignore them and say, well, you just don't know, you're holier than that, I can't live like that. does you no good if you don't do that. So that's what I want to encourage you today. Seek wise counsel. Have godly friends and rely on them. And better yet, if you're not in that situation where you need those godly friends right now in your life, be that godly friend for somebody else. That's as important as anything you can do as a Christian on this earth is to have that input into somebody else's life that's seeking God and seeking His will. Let's pray about that. Father, I thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your son. God, thank you for this fantastic story that is so relatable today to what we go through in our own lives god i just i just pray that we'll take it the holy spirit will work in us this week as we we're involved in situations god where we we need to recall these facts that we've heard and seek counsel god 
Lord, I just pray, however it is, the things that we need in our life, God, that we will honor you by seeking you first and then seeking out people that can guide us in our lives, Lord, and that can give us good godly wisdom about the things we do because, God, we're faced with challenges every day. And, God, we need your help, your son's help. We need the Holy Spirit guiding us, and we need good friends to help us through this, Lord. I just pray that journey is a place that if you're seeking, seeking God's will, that you can, you can come and know you're amongst friends. And we have godly people here that will help you on that journey. And, Lord, if, you're, if there's someone here today that is, is really seeking, I, I pray they'll seek one of us out, God, and, and try and find the way, Lord. If there's someone here that doesn't know your son as their Savior, I pray before they leave here today, they'll, they'll, they'll know, God, that you made the ultimate sacrifice by giving your son. You sacrificed him for our sins that we might have eternal life. So when we have these situations, God, the things we do wrong are not put to our debt, but to Christ. He covered those sins for us, Lord. Just pray that we'll realize that today, Lord. Pray that we'll strive to live holy lives, to live godly lives, and be with us throughout this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.